So welcome to Deconstructing Health and Fitness with Chris Wilkins and Elizabeth Hefner. We're going to take a look at a lot of things going on in health and fitness today, and we're going to decide whether or not they're actually useful, whether they apply to you, or whether they're really taking you in the wrong direction. So over a decade of coaching, clients led me to believe that the only way for people to experience lasting change is for them to understand their habits and systems they have currently in place and move from there. I apply a scientific approach to that. We change a thing. We look at how it works. We decide if it's working or not, and then we change something else and we repeat. You can't just coach one aspect of health and fitness. You have to coach them all at once. All right. Welcome back to Deconstructing Health and Fitness with Chris Wilkins and Elizabeth Hefner. And today we've got another special guest and we're pretty excited about him. We're anticipating this being a really fun back and forth. He's another coach. He actually bills himself as a weight loss coach at this time, but I would say he's much more having talked to him a little bit already. (laughs) Um, And he came to this really because he had a hundred pounds to lose and went through this very epic journey to get there. And that's kind of what we're going to be talking about today, but that's not all he is. He's had many other careers. He's traveled around the world. Um, he was in the Navy and now he's a dad. So with that said, welcome coach John. Hey, thanks so much for having me. And you know, you're so right. I wish I could like almost not talk about weight loss or say side effects might include weight loss. That's really truthfully what I want to say. Um, Weight loss definitely helps people. Like most people will benefit from lowering their body fat percentage, right? But the way that this whole, I mean, I'm like, like, woo, right into the deep end. Go right in for it. (laughs) The way that this industry is like approached it and and it was so like, and I had such a disordered relationship with myself, with my body, with food. Like it was just a huge mess. And it's like, but I also have this idea that I I, want to meet people where they're at. And so I I call it like meet them at the ground floor, not the 10th floor. Um, so invite them in and then we start having conversation. What do you really like? Weight loss is just a number on the scale. What do you really want out of this? Like, what is this actually about for you? And, but most people, because of the way that they've been, they've been sort of conditioned around this whole idea of your know, diet culture, fitness culture, weight, all that kind of stuff. They think happiness lies in losing weight. And so I kind of like, I'll meet you at that conversation. And then I'm going to try and like bring you over to the light side. <laughs> And it's interesting. I think this is one of the reasons why all of the things I saw about you on Facebook resonated so much with me is because I feel like we're singing a very similar tune. Um, And, you know, in our last discussion, when we were getting ready for this podcast, we talked about trying to make our voices louder than some of this other stuff coming out and going on out there, because I feel like we all go through this evolution, right? As human beings on our journey to health and happiness and all the things that we want in our life, we are on this journey and I can look back and see myself, you know, 15 years ago before I became a coach and I can completely empathize and understand the allure of all of the weight loss marketing and all of the dieting marketing and all of the fitness marketing that's out there. I mean, I did all of them as you did and as Liz did too, you know, and it's like, I feel like we're coming out the other side and we're the first ones really through because if you look at the history of fitness and the history of weight loss and everything, like it's not that old. I mean, weight loss, no, is, no. we can talk about that after many, many hours, but if we look at fitness really, and we talk about some of the OGs like Jack LaLanne and yeah, yeah. Arnold, you know, we were talking about pumping iron on the last time we chatted and you know, those are some of the very first appearances of like mainstream fitness and bodybuilding in modern Western world. Right. And so when you look at how old that is, it's like, it's like a little teeny weeny baby compared to 
<laughs> a lot of the other things going on. Compared to human history. Like, right. Weight loss. Could you imagine a thousand years ago telling someone that you're struggling to lose weight? They're like, <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're hoping the potatoes don't have blight this year because right. otherwise we're going to starve in the winter. And so I, I love to say that we have a we have a famine biology, but we're stuck in a feast world now. And that's one of the problems that we we bump up against. Yeah, absolutely. It's interesting because I was telling you about this documentary I was watching on Netflix, and that was yeah. actually one of the episodes was, you know, you you will acclimatize to whatever the environment is. But when you start messing around with that famine response, like it's so hardwired after millions of years, just millions of years of having to work your butt off to find adequate calories to survive and reproduce. It's like, it's a complete like turning of the tables that's happened in the last 100, 200 years. Yeah. And, you know, I think back, so in, in, in like my 20s, I was an athlete. So I was just active. I I could probably get away with eating like reasonably well, but I didn't have to really think about being healthy. And I would think that anybody that was overweight was lazy and undisciplined. That was my ignorant perspective. Um, and I say ignorant, not, not in a malicious way, but really I just didn't know any better. My only perspective was, Oh, I remember telling my dad, I'm never going to get fat. Like what a, what a thing to say. And you know, life clubbed me over the head, both literally and metaphorically and knocked that out of me. Um, because partway in my journey, I ended up going through trauma and not knowing how to deal with it. I turned to food and that became my crutch. And I ate my trauma to the, to the tune of gaining a lot of weight. <laughs> yeah. And it happened so quickly. I think it's the, oh. the really upsetting part about it is your body is super excited about those extra calories <laughs> so life because oh, yeah. it's potential survival, right? Yeah. So and you're, you're giving it these opportunities to feel safe. Yeah. Well, and, and like body fat from a biological perspective is your famine reserve. That's what it is. It's like, I, I tried to figure it out and I think, you know, we couldn't say exactly, but I figure I probably had enough calories in reserve carried around on my body that I could survive more than one year without consuming any calories. I, I need a bit of water and maybe a multivitamin. In fact, there was an experiment done with, I think with a Scottish patient uh, back, maybe back in the eighties where they gave him like just water and like a vitamin pill for a year. And he would have dropped like, I don't know, a few hundred pounds. Um, so like I had that much sort of famine reserve on my body <laughs> carrying it around. And you're right. It, it shocked me because really the massive weight gain happened over like a six month span. And the part that's like kind of mind blowing is it, it took about six years to get to a stable, healthy weight. So six months to like blow up in weight, like gain like a hundred pounds and like six years to really, now there was a lot of learning that took place. And there was a lot of, I waded into this sort of murky world of weight loss and diet culture. One that I'd never really had to be a part of before because I didn't really have to lose weight. Yeah. <laughs> Let's stop and unpack that for just a second though, because like six months to gain a hundred pounds and six years to lose it. I think that is such a key, key piece of understanding about weight loss yeah. is that it feels like, Hey, you know, I got here pretty quick. I'm just going to do the opposite and that's going to fix all my problems. And that <laughs> into exactly what we talk about all the time. Elizabeth is this pendulum swing, right? Yeah. So you, Okay, fine. Yeah, you shove that pendulum pretty hard in one direction, but that backswing is a bitch, and it's kind yeah. of scary, you know what I mean. So it's like, yeah, if, if you don't respect the physics of this, it's going to get you in the end, and you will just keep going back and forth. And I think this is where the the yo yo dieting really takes its toll on people. Oh so yeah. Can you maybe that's something I know that you I haven't heard you talking about on other podcasts. It's like 
How linear was your weight loss? Um, totally not. It would look like a horrifying roller coaster ride. <laughs> like it would, it would make just about like the hardiest of stomachs vomit if you if that was a roller coaster. If I was to graph it, um, because I would. Uh, I, I believe, although I don't have a clinical diagnosis, that I have a condition known as cyclothymia. This is my own psychological understanding, kind of how my brain works, um, which we could call under the radar bipolar, essentially. And I, I say I don't say that blithely to diminish anyone's mental health struggles. Um, but what that means is I went through periods of like under the radar mania, where I would just be like, whoa, pedal to the metal. Here we go. Hardcore fueled by pre-workout and ephedrine and powerlifting and uh, heavy metal. You know, I'm going to. Yeah, total like, oh, man culture, here we go, you know, and like, make no mistake, I enjoy being a man, I have nothing, no, you know, but like, I was, I was going straight into it, and I'm going to get like big and strong and powerful and ah, you know, and, but I'd burn myself to the ground, basically, until I had nothing left, and I'd just fall into this funk for like months where I couldn't, I just did not care. Um, and I couldn't make myself care because I was so burned out from like pushing so hard. I had no understanding of how I was thrashing my nervous system and i think that's a really under discussed element of getting healthy is your nervous system health so i went all over the map i i tried keto i tried vegan i went raw food vegan i did paleo i went gluten-free um I, I was a voracious examine.com reader. Uh, I, have a, I have a former research background. I'm a nanotech. I was a nanotechnology researcher at University of Victoria. Um, and so I was, and I ran a supplement store. I had like literally a pharmacy of supplements in my basement because supplement companies just dump free samples in your lap to get you to use them and talk about them. So I had, I had like an entire supplement store in my basement of just samples given to me. So here I, I had like everything I thought I needed to like lose weight and none of it was working. And, and I had an education behind me too. And I was like, how can I know all this stuff, have all this stuff? And I just can't seem to get anywhere. I just kept running to this brick wall. And, and, and so that ended up turning into like really starting to loathe myself and hate, like turning into like self genuine, like self-hatred and really, you know, this might be triggering for some people, really like self-abuse. Like I was very, I was abusing food and really kind of almost punishing myself for my failure by stuffing food in like, I look back now and I'm like, that was a crazy messy place to be with regards to like, you know, my, my mental state of affairs, but that was, you know, and, and you couple with, there's other factors in there. Like I had a struggling um, business and a crooked business partner and stuff like that. Like it was just this, it was just this messy, like, and the real life stuff though. And that's usually, I mean, we've talked about this a little bit too, is that's usually the the situation. It's never just one thing, right? If it was just one thing, you'd be able to, you know, sort of scientifically assassinate it by getting really organized, <laughs> you know, like going through the motions of like, okay, well, this didn't work and that didn't work. And I think that's why sometimes the, the misconception persists that weight loss is as linear as weight gain because oh, yeah. you're just having to understand and control for so many other factors when you're attempting to, manage that famine response in the other direction. I, I want to steal the term scientifically assassinate. I love that. <laughs> I was like, oh, I'm that is mine now. I'm taking that because I was a research scientist, right? I was really into the data and numbers. I built spreadsheets. I'm, I'm like pretty handy on spreadsheets. So I, I had an in-body 520. I was scanning my body composition. I was weighing my food and tracking my macros, except those things I didn't want to track, like eating an entire pizza in my car in a parking lot. You know, that didn't count, apparently. Um, I was. If it's in your car. Yeah. Totally doesn't count. Yeah. So I would, 
you know, I would just obsessively track these numbers and and try to figure out and study the data and be like, what is wrong? Why is this not working? And I'd be so angry. And, um, you know, it, it was when I hired a, a coach from Precision Nutrition, actually. Um, his name is Scott Quick. So I'll give him I'll give him a shout out because I really he, he genuinely changed my life. Um, and this is going back to 2017. Um, you know, he asked me a question. He said, uh, if you make a list of all the things you love and value, how far down that list do I go before I see your name? and that one stopped me in my tracks. Like literally I was speechless. I was dumbfounded. I was like, you just like blew my mind because in my world, I wasn't like, I wasn't even in consideration to be on a list of things I love and value, let alone the bottom of the list. I like, I wasn't even close to the list. It didn't even occur to put yourself on the list. No, I just all of a sudden had this moment of reckoning where I, I was just like, holy crap. Like I just, I've just been missing this, this entire time. I have been face deep in spreadsheets and data and totally missed the human part. I was trying to totally divorce from the emotion of it and, and scientifically assassinate my obesity and well, yeah. it was not working. It's super uncomfortable to deal with those feelings, right? I don't care whether you're a man, a woman, you know, or anything in between. Yeah feelings and having to deal with discomfort is very confronting. And I think oh, yeah. that that's really where we're at as a society. We've got to just start confronting some of this discomfort because the fact that we are trying to scientifically assassinate it. And, you know, I've watched over the past five or so years, just how more meticulous all of the marketing has become, you know, like, oh, I'm going to give you this really in-depth piece of information about how your body works. And then I'm going to convince you that my product works because science. And it's like, no, <laughs> can we please yeah. not use science this way? Like it's, a, it's, yeah. you know, it's missing yeah. the forest for the trees. It, it is. And, you know, um, I, I feel frustrated. I love that you said, like, we, we want to shout louder. I'm like, I want to yell into the microphone because I'm, I'm like a former supplement industry insider, too. You know, I mean, I was setting up manufacturing for a supplement line. I did consulting for supplement companies because of my chemistry background, like for formulations and things. Um, I was involved in the bodybuilding industry and everything that comes with that. And, oh, talk about orthorexia and disordered eating and body dysmorphia. And, you know, it, what a messy. So I was in all of that. And the, the, the lie is that happiness is, is, you know, flexing on a stage or looking or looking like that. I'm like, no, it's not. These are some of the most, and that's not to, this is not to disparage um, th those who, who compete and who, who treat it, you know, not at all. But from my perspective and from a, where I was mentally, it was like the worst thing imaginable to be exposed to. And then to hire coaches in that realm, because I thought that's where happiness lie. I thought if I could get abs, I'd be happy. Maybe I'd love myself. I didn't even think of those words because I wasn't thinking I could love myself. But I just thought somehow, like, if I could get that. And, you know, I even was like just, oh, I was flirting with the concept of like maybe uh, using some illegitimate substances to to attempt to get somewhere because I couldn't seem to get there on my own. You know, that was that was where I was getting towards. And, and ultimately, I didn't go down that path. But boy, I was close. I think that's actually the common like end of the slide, if you want to kind of look at it as if you feel like I'm one of those big twisty slides and it just keeps yeah. going. Down. Like that's the end of the slide I find for a lot of people. And what I've noticed as well is that it's, it doesn't matter. And I've coached a lot of ex pro bodybuilders, IFBB competitors and stuff. And, and 
it's the same narrative over and over. And, and as somebody who has lived this myself in the sense that I didn't ever compete on stage because I, I always felt like that's where my line was. Like, I was like, no, if I do that, I've gone too far, which is arbitrary completely. Let me just say that. Right? Absolutely. Yeah. Doing all the other things I just wasn't getting up on stage. Right. And so it was really, really interesting. I know actually we were talking about this on the recent recording of the podcast was that it didn't matter what size I was. I always had in my mind, if I just could get to this one size, if I could just could see one more ab or, oh, if I could see a little more definition in my thighs, I'd be happy and it would be okay. And no matter how thin I got or how, you know, ripped I looked or how dehydrated I was, I never thought it was enough. Ever, 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 ever. There is no place that you can hide from the fact that you're not happy with yourself. There is no body weight that will help you hide from that. Mm, say it louder for the people in the back. <laughs> there isn't. It's if you're if the reason you are into aesthetic fitness is because you are unhappy with something in your life, you will be disappointed no matter how far you go. And I even had one of my trainers um, who was very successful. She she medaled or she podiumed or whatever every time she went up for it, but she was dealing with almost kidney failure and liver failure from the absolute lack of adequate nutrients in her diet. And she refused, she refused categorically to change because she said, I can't ever be fat. That's what she said. And I I never forgot it because it was so, such a poignant moment and the terror in her eyes at the idea that somebody would ever look at her and think that she was overweight. And like for reference at the time, she weighed 118 pounds and was about five, six. Okay. So yeah, this is, this is such a pervasive thing. And I think this is one of the reasons again, why I was so interested to reach out to you and have you come on here is because there need to be more of our voices out there saying, this isn't where people end up either. You know, people don't have the six pack abs forever. No, unsustainable place and it's destroying your health and it's it's eroding like it erodes most people's mental health except for maybe the the most like the i don't don't want to know how to put it but there's like one percent of people who attempt this which is already a very small section of the population who even attempt it that then are mentally stable on the other side of it yeah, it, it just, I mean, I, I have stories of people just ending up in the hospital, same thing, kidney failure, liver damage, yeah. um, just dehydration, cardiovascular incidents, um, yeah. because their blood is like thicker than oil. It, it, it's it's mind-boggling. Yeah, <laughs> yeah but, I mean, like, the, the know, truth right? is, like, I'm like, no one, everyone, I mean, like, if we want to get into the biology of, like, sexual attraction, I'm like, the, there's, like, no joy in that either at that stage, because you're so in such ab- abject misery, but. How could you? On this with women and their reproductive hormones, and this is actually another, the same trainer that I, I had was, you know, she was constantly, like, saying, well, I haven't had a period in, like, a year. She's like, I don't really know what to do about that. And I was like, well, it involves eating more food. You know, <laughs> yeah. that's kind of the the way we're going to get out of this. And she was just like, well, no, I'm not going to eat more food. And I was like, okay. And then, you know, she actually had a reproductive scare. She was told she might never have children. And she was 24 at the time. 
Man. And, you know, that started to sort of shift things in her mind. I think she hadn't really come to terms with how her behavior was lining up with her reality. Do you know what? I think this is really, this is the crux of it, isn't it? If we yeah. unpack any of these tendencies that we see in fitness and in weight loss and in dieting, it's that reality doesn't line up with your behavior. No. And it's, it's fascinating because if you asked anybody like would you continue to follow a diet that made you fatigued and irritable and all of these things most people would say no yeah because do it who actually wants to live in misery but it comes from like these cognitive distortions that we that yeah. we and i mean I, I was a victim of them too really the i remember like i i got myself down to about a visible four pack which is like it was it was pretty dang hard to get there <laughs> I, I was training six days a week. Uh, you know, I was walking two 45 minute walks, like twice, you know, twice a day kind of thing. I could not like, and I was eating 1500 calories a day and I'm six one and normally walk around about two thirty five, right? Like I could not sustain that. And so, and then, you know, I posted a picture before and after of like, uh, like me, like I, I don't have any photos of me at my most obese because I was, I would like literally threaten violence towards a camera. If someone pointed my direction, that's how like disordered I was with myself. And I, it's <coughs> pardon, <coughs> pardon me, I'm getting choked up here, <laughs> but it, it is, it is genuinely a shame that that's how I felt about myself. That if I was to see myself in a photo looking like that, that I, I had such hatred or loathing towards myself that I would rather destroy a camera than have that history captured. So but to shift back, I posted before and after of like me looking like pretty, pretty jacked, you know, and me being fat. And I actually picked up about five clients from that before and after, and none of them lasted more than about two months because it's not who I am. It was not in alignment with how I genuinely, it's not how I work with people. And they all bought into the promise that I was kind of seeing if that's, you know, that, that if I, I'd be happy if I look like that. And it's just, it's just not true. It's categorically untrue. Well, and it's interesting that you bring up the whole transformation photo <laughs> epidemic. Yeah. Yeah. It's an epidemic because it sells you, yeah. it sells you on the destinations, right? The origin yeah. of the destination, but it doesn't tell you anything about the journey. Like Not that at all. doesn't tell you about the emotional struggle or the, you know, relational struggle between you and people in your life. It doesn't tell yeah. anything about the ups and the downs of your actual weight. It's just start and finish. And I think we like this as humans because we like to be able to say like, Oh, I have a goal. I can achieve it. Just, yeah. I'm just going to do what this guy did. Cause obviously that's what works. And it's the same with, you know, massive goals. Like, and I always use climbing Mount Everest because it's a really familiar goal. Everybody knows it's dangerous. It's very complex. You know, you don't have control of all of the variables, but like the idea of just standing at the top of the mountain, when you're standing at the bottom of it, like all of a sudden this whole world of challenges opens up between you and your goal. And I think yeah. that needs to be more front and center when people are attacking health and fitness goals. It's like, this isn't a, I show up at the gym and magically I have a six pack. Like, that's just not how it works. You just destroyed my dreams. <laughs> I'm sorry. That's my job. Yeah. yeah. I am the destroyer of dreams and the queen of unpopular yeah. opinions. But <laughs> I, well, that's the thing. And, and like, I still show some before and afters of some of my clients again. And, and I, I wish I, 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 maybe I don't have to. I don't know. I say I wish I didn't have to. And maybe, maybe in doing this kind of stuff, I yeah. won't have to in the future. Um, 
But it's again, it's about meeting people where they're at and trying to, hey, let, let's come over here and let's talk about what this is really what this is really about, you know, and uh, I love what you're doing with with this podcast here. And, um, you know, I want to do something similar on, on Wellness Unplugged uh, on one one half of it. I actually want to take a client on a transformation journey. I want to find someone that's willing to sort of publicly um, go through this journey and and talk about the the real raw gritty human aspect of attempting to accomplish this and so i want to show between the zero and the 100 the other 99 numbers and say this is what it's like um for real and just i I wish i could take a sledgehammer to the illusion of social media and just go like let's let's talk about what this really looks like and and you know why we even want to do this for it's, it's for a fake promise you know it's like las vegas it's all glitzy and glam but the underbelly is just rotten to its core yeah. And it's it's not indicative of the reality of any of what it takes to be successful at anything. You know, and I, I think that's so dangerous because we we especially in America, we love the rags to riches story. But we never see any of the intermediate parts. We never see that part where whoever that famous person was, was sitting in a corner crying because they'd had somebody reject them. And, you know, they'll talk about it briefly. You'll hear them sort of mention this. Oh, well, there was one time I was like 40 and nobody knew who I was and I thought it was over. And then that just gets glossed over. Yeah. ultimate success that they had. And I think that that is super problematic when we're, we're looking at what actually makes people successful. And well, well, what we're doing is we're driving, we're driving happiness into some arbitrary point into the future. And we're saying like, you're almost like you're not allowed to be happy until you achieve one of these points in your life. You, you somehow you're not worthy. And the problem with that mindset is no matter where you get, there's always a point in the future you could potentially get to. So your happiness will always be in the distance and you'll just be miserable and, and really hate yourself and hate your life and you just keep the can down the road like that's the nature of the beast if you play that game right like if you if you can't stop and to be mindful of now and, and mindfulness is like one of my favorite current topics because it's blown up in the last five years yeah. or so. and what was interesting we did a whole episode on noom and we went through the intake process together on like on air yeah yeah <laughs> And what was fascinating was it was doing such a better job of selling you that your mindset was important and all of this. And then it completely leveled all that at the end by giving you 1200 calories, no matter how tall you were, how old you were, uh, yeah. you, and asking you to adhere to this rigid meal plan. And it was like so close. Oh, we're getting there. Like, yeah. <clears throat> no, that was funny. because But it's the same snake oil. Like, oh, yes. now it's even harder to find your way through because you think you're focusing on mindset. You think you're focusing on now or on enjoying the things that you have or taking advantage of the capacities you have. And you're not because you're still still yeah. in that punishment mode. And so funny because I did the same thing in January. I was like, I'm going to sign up for Noom and just <laughs> see what see what the hype is about, yeah. you know, and 140 bucks for like, I don't know, eight months. So insanely cheap. And you're like, oh my gosh, I love the promise of this. You know, 140 bucks for eight months. It's going to change. I'm like, okay, yeah. You get like how many calories did they give you? I'm curious. Uh, 1720. You got 1700? And we got, I got, I'm six (laughs) foot tall. I got 1200. Yeah, she did. Yeah. But it's, and that was with multiple days of weightlifting. And this, like, I, I almost, like, I had a complete breakdown. I wanted to go find Noom and I wanted to be, I just wanted to be like, you triggered me. (laughs) Yeah. It's, it's, um, well, because, you know, like, we're, we're, at least I'm, I'm a solopreneur. You know, I, I'm a one man show in my coaching business. And you think, how do you compete against this? I don't know, 
multi-million dollar company that just has marketing dollars to splash everywhere. They have so many people that have gone through their program that they can pick the 0.1% of their clientele that actually succeeded. And, and they don't tell you about the other 99%. And of course it's alluring, you know, um, but at the end of the day, it's, it's just the same, Hey, we're just going to restrict your food intake. And we're, we're going to take you through some really colorful little slides here that tell you this or that. I, I, I almost, and maybe it's because I, I live in this world, my head's in this world, but I, I felt like it was almost infantilizing, like this me and this process. It wasn't respecting or empowering like my autonomy as a, as a free thinking adult human being. It was like, let's dumb it down because you're too dumb. Well, that's how they appeal to like them. That's how you appeal to the masses. You just like do the lowest common denominator and just are like, okay, there are a lot more. Am I? Should I need, I'm going to need to cut this out. There are a lot more freaking idiots in this world than there are <laughs> than there are people who um, have that. What's that? What's that thing that you love, Chris? You know, where you like um, have common sense and you can think through a problem. What's that thing? Critical thinking. Thank you. Thinking, yeah. Love critical thinking. <laughs> the critical thinking. The critical thinking is not is not like a readily available skill that they teach you in school. I think. Oh, and it's in American. I'm sorry, American school. I don't know about Canadian school. I, I dated I a Canadian. So he knew way more about American history than I ever did. He just he was great at math and at like science, and he just he. I'm like, what are they teaching you in Canada? And why is it so bad in America? <laughs> I mean, that's that is a rabbit hole to potentially that's go just down. A rabbit like, hole. The the dumbing down of the American education system. <laughs> For That's a whole other podcast. Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll just put that in the shiny object <laughs> for <her> because <laughs> I, I will say that it is a thousand percent a contributing factor to the effectiveness of these kinds of marketing strategies. Yes, and you know what? Like, it's it's like almost no one's going to teach you critical thinking. You have to figure it out for yourself. And it says, and and so I quietly mentor a few other people in, in help, helping coaches build their business too. And I don't really publicize it because I don't want to be a part of the six figure club of, I'm not going to use the term I normally use, but you know, we'll call it the six figure club. Um, I just want to help people like build businesses that, that work for them, that help them help people. That's a, that's a mouthful. Um, but in there, I say, if you can master the skill of critical thinking, this will put you miles ahead of everybody else who's just trying to pump out the same like marketing material because they see everybody else doing it. It's, yeah, the ability to take a piece of information and just turn it over in your head. And get through the the, the shit storm of emotions where your emotions are like, no, but really like this time, like this is the answer. You don't seem to realize critical thinking and you're, no. But I think that's the, that's the absolute key because you said you're a solopreneur. I'm in the same boat now. You know, I, I ran a very large gym for a while and I've done lots of different things in fitness and I, I really enjoy being part of a company, but I kept coming back to the same thing, which was there wasn't any real critical thinking happening about how we were solving the actual problems in fitness. And I think it's about not competing. Like, how do we do this? We don't compete. And it's one of the things, who is it? It's the... PTDC, the uh, personal trainer development center. Thank you. Gosh, I, I, been, I think I'm just old because I like can't think of words. Sometimes. I couldn't think of the term critical thinking, Chris. Oh, there must be a supplement <laughs> somewhere in John's basement. It's just, our, it's just our woman brain. Just kidding. I have to, count, no. I have to cut that out. 
it's it's my it's I don't know it could be like my dad brain energy sort of being transmitted because like dad brain's thing too my recall my recall is not as quick as it normally is I have a pretty good memory like I'm I'm pretty lucky and I notice after like five months of dadhood <laughs> I'm like okay yeah. it's not quite I'm not quite as sharp as I I kind of expect myself to be because you know sleep is really helpful for brain function. That's kind of critical. And I think, I think it's this, he said it actually, it was a long time ago. He said, if you're competing, you're already lost. And it's because you shouldn't be competing with all of these other bad messages because then you're going to fall into the same traps. I think, and this is what's so challenging is like, because now as a solopreneur, as your business grows, how do you scale without losing that critical art of coaching that made you successful in the first place? And it's like you said, you know, these bigger companies, they have 1% of people who have this raging, amazing success that they can pull from. But as somebody who's helping people more fundamentally on a one-on-one basis, you're not going to generate that the same way. Like, it's just no. not, <clears throat> because like, the, not the truth is even everyone that you work with as a solopreneur is not necessarily going to be successful in the metrics that we typically like to publish. Right. Uh, I have some clients that I've worked with for over a year and they haven't lost a pound. Now the flip side of that is they haven't gained a pound, but the third flip side of that, we could actually turn into a cube really um, and say that their relationship with themselves and their body is entirely transformed. And that's not something you can capture in a before and after photo. Exactly. And it's not a metric that's easy to track. Therefore, it's yeah. really hard to market that. How do you market that without sounding like kind of a douchey transformation thing? Like, <laughs> life coach. John changed my life. Coach Chris really knew what was going on inside me and absolutely changed. It's like that doesn't work anymore, you know? And I think yeah. that's part of why the idea of creating this echo chamber and of amplifying our voices is so critical because it is what works, but it doesn't scale very well. I mean, I spent three years desperately trying to scale this, you know, and I I had a very concrete, very like solid functional training methodology for new coming trainers and for all of the staff that I had in that gym to try to get them on the same page, moving in the same direction. And it just wasn't, it wasn't enough. It's never going to be enough because I think until really the tide shifts, until there are enough of us that we're like flapping our arms around the ocean like long enough and loud enough (laughs) that like all those other people are like, oh, what's going on over there? That's how it's going to change. And I feel like, you know, as much as you and I are both certified by precision nutrition, like it's, they're not the only game in town, but I feel like that's how they built their business up was it was definitely like nobody knew them, nobody knew them, nobody had ever heard of it, nothing, nothing, nothing. And then boom, they had gained enough momentum, right? That they yeah. they were suddenly very visible. And so even now though, still, I would say they're not as visible as some of the bigger brands. That's not the number one thing that people yeah. nutrition coaching, you know, it's, it's, it's still building. But it's kind of interesting because like their process is made to be quite scalable in a sense. And the only way you make it scalable is you depersonalize it. Yep. You, Which you, kills it again. That's that's I, the challenge. Is And, and so like I, I've tried to learn from them and their business model and say, okay, what are some things that I can do that are similar in one sense? And that's really the change psychology, like diving deep into that. The, the human element. But I, I also went and said, like, well, what are the things? Because I was a PN client for a year. 
And I know I give a lot of credit to Scott Quick because, and it was really him, not the PN program. It was him and the way that he communicated with me that, that really created the impact. It was that, that human element. And even when I tried to turn Lifestyle 180 into something more scale, Lifestyle 180 is my flagship program. And when I tried to turn it into something more scalable, I found that like client retention was dropping off. They were missing that human connection. And I realized that, you know, I probably do better with a smaller volume of clients and maintain that human connection. Um, that's, that is where the results lie. And so. I, that's so important that you said that, because we were talking about like Noom and these programs, these apps who, I mean, you know, if, if it's successful for you, if it works for you and you're happy with it, that's one thing. But I'm doubling down on what you said about that human connection. Like I'm here with, I'm here for Chris. I'm like, I'm not, I wouldn't have stayed with the program, frankly, if it weren't for Chris. It's like, that's, you know, that's the important key component. Um, So expecting like these, these programs and these apps to be able to actually work like that is pretty unrealistic. And I think that's where we come back to like, what's the scalability The scalability is getting more coaches working one-on-one with people, making that the scalable factor is that you've got to have more coaches out there who are doing this rather than trying to run small group training and run group programs and do all of those things. Because I don't think this gets solved on a group level long-term. I have this individual journey. Yeah. I, and I have this this dream of uh, I, I call it like the superhero wellness academy. I think I'm calling it right now. <laughs> I, I don't really know what I'm going to call it, um, but it's this idea that you know I, you have like a, a training specialist, a nutrition specialist, a mindset specialist, and then like an overall sort of um, I don't know head coach. And you come into this and you have you have a, a, like kind of a team of specialists at your disposal. I don't know how this is going to work. I'm just it's like queer eye for this. It's queer eye. <laughs> That's literally what it's going to take. Right. So because I, I, you know, I let my personal training certification lapse. I I don't think I didn't make me dumb. I didn't forget how to like write programs and things like that. (laughs) But I, you know, because that's not where my passion lies. My passion isn't in like, okay, we're going to do like three sets of 12 reps of this, you know, pyramid superset of reverse dumbbell flies to, you know, bring out your posterior deltoid. Like, uh, like it's just <laughs> boring though, but it's boring now, right? And this right. Is the evolution of a co- as a coach is that that stuff is where you start. I think a lot of us. Yeah. Start there. Oh, I was a macro coach. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Numbers, numbers, numbers. It's, if you want to gain, if you want to get big, I'm gonna change your rep range. I'm gonna change your set range. Everything's gonna be awesome, and it's just gonna turn these dials. Yeah. <laughs> totally fine, right? But then you realize, wait a second, like I'm turning all these dials, and I'm really good at turning these dials, like. I know how to, I, I mean, I can tell somebody's heart rate by watching them work out. I've dialed these things in so much. I can tell you, I've actually I had a new client the other day who was down in the basement and she was not working as hard as I wanted her to. And I was like, come on, keep going. She says, no, I'm working really hard. I'm like, your heart rate's at like 115. And she was like, no, it's not. I was like, look at your watch. And she was like, oh my God. <laughs> like go harder. Like you're just not moving quick enough to gain up any kind of muscle tension. Like you're, you're go, yeah. you know. And she was like, "How did you know that?" I'm like, "Because I've been doing this for donkey's years. I know the physiological signs of work." Like, and I feel like that happens as you start coaching behavior too. You you start to see the patterns of behavior. You start to see like, aha, this is what's coming next. Aha, okay. Well, they spent this week really, really worrying about everything they ate. So next week, this is going to happen. You know, and you yeah. see these patterns. It's like, 
like seeing the matrix. You know, I think you do need a superhero academy. Yeah. Like, and, or, or we could just make Queer Eye and I get to be Jonathan because I totally want to do the cooking part. <laughs> well, I, I don't know like the characters, but I mean, that that is my name. But, uh, you know, oh, that's true. That is your name. Damn it. I know that's, that's a bit confusing. I mean, I go by Coach John with my clients, but yes, my actual name, the one that my parents gave me is Jonathan. But I, I, um, you, you're you're really, really on point. And the one thing that I think is really challenging as a coach is at some point we're going to bump into something that goes outside of our scope of practice. Mm-hmm. And that's the part that um, like, I don't want to say it trips me up a little bit, but it's like, cause now I'm comfortable saying, Hey, you know what? Um, that's something that I can, sh- I can hold space for you to share that. And it sounds so cliche to even use that phrase, hold space. Yeah. You know, I'm like, Oh, I'm like a cringe a little bit on the inside when I say that phrase, but I'm like, I don't, I don't know how else to express it. I can be present with you while you're sharing this and I can be human with you and connect with you. So you don't feel alone in sharing your vulnerability basically. But the truth is a qualified, cause I've been, I've been traumatized. I know trauma counseling. It's like a qualified trauma counselor can, you know, carefully open a box, unpack a little bit of it, close the box, put it back in, and you can leave that session in a safe mental state. Yeah. You know, now that being said, you know, I I, I think you, you would have worked with the same individual, uh, KSD, uh, for a period of time. I did. And, yeah. We, I, like, I like her brain a lot, too. Um, awesome. But there, were, there was a reason why I brought up um, KSD. You know, the thing is, when you're working with somebody and they're they're sharing something with you that you're like, holy crap, this is pretty big. And it feels like bigger than me. You're, you really, she said, you really can't like screw somebody up any worse than they already are by just like hearing them. You're not going to, you know? And so it, it it's because I think sometimes as coaches, we're like afraid, like, oh my gosh, don't say that. If, if I even hear that, you know, something can go sideways and I can get sued or, and it's like, you, you're allowed to hear this stuff and, and empathize and share compassion. It's when you drive, you know, dive into the realm of, well, let me try and treat this for you. You know, that's where it becomes a problem. It's so hard. Um, not that I'm not a coach, but I, I just feel like being in a really empathetic person, I struggle if someone's telling me about their trauma or whatever they're experiencing that might be uncomfortable and painful. I'm like, I need to soothe you because that's my job. I need to protect you and soothe you. And I'm just like, yeah. And, you know, my, my best friend has, has actually trained me very well by example, because whenever I'm ranting about something or, or talking about something upsetting, she's like, oh, you know, do you want advice or do you want me to just like listen? You yeah. know, and I'm like, wow. Oh, I I just thought everyone when you're ranting about someone or something, you know, like you're just supposed to give advice because that's the thing. Like, right. <laughs> um, that's, yeah, that's course. fascinating. And especially like like male i mean there are differences between the male and female brain and there is a stronger like the stereotype holds truth like men try to fix things but i think it's connected to our in our strong dislike of sitting with uncomfortable emotions quick fix it because i'm at risk of feeling something yeah. like oh my gosh if i if i don't fix this i'm gonna feel something when they're expressing it and it's like it's I, i've kind of learned that it, as even as a man that it's okay to have feelings <laughs> like it's it's actually okay my but, feeling that comes up is like I need to I need to help I need to do something I can't just be standing there and not doing something well and when I you know when I shared like my trauma with people like because some people want to know they, they're curious they want to dig and they want to figure out like what happened you know and I was nearly beaten to death and I, I, I don't mean to say like blithely like it was pretty traumatic it was pretty hard to go through um, but I tried to reassure people I'm like look you don't have to fix this you don't it's not it's not your job to fix this you don't even have to have words like, because there really aren't words there aren't, you know? And so when somebody, you know, loses a, a human, a special human in their life or something, 
you know, I just try to reach out to them in, in the most human way and say, look, man, or, you know, uh, you know, I'm really sorry. And I don't, I don't have any words because words wouldn't really fix it. But I just, uh, I just want, you know, you to know that I'm, I'd like to be in your presence and just kind of be with you in this moment. Mm-hmm. And just trying to express it like that as, as humanly as possible, because that's, that's what we need. We just need to anchor to other human beings sometimes. I think that's really, really important what you said there, because I think it's this idea of when you become a coach, whatever specific flavor of health and fitness you happen to be coaching at the time, it's drilled into you by whatever certification you get that you better not deviate from that scope of practice. Don't you dare. And then you get into coaching and you realize there are some blurry, blurry lines. (laughs) There is no way you can avoid a hundred percent of the time, not dipping your toe over a line or two or 17 or whatever. And it's all of a sudden, it's like, well, actually what we really need at the base here, besides critical thinking skills, are communication skills. And the fact that these things are not taught alongside of the, you know, scientific assassination tools that we're given, like a free strategy, in my opinion, because it is that thing of like, just because somebody tells you about their trauma, doesn't mean you have to take it in. And people have asked me this before too, is like, how do you listen to people and all of the things that happen to them and all of the things that they're going through? And I have clients, they cry in sessions. You know, I've had clients shout at me because they were just dealing with something so epic on the side that when they showed up, they couldn't calm down. And I've had all sorts of these things come at me and it's like, but again, like you, I've had enough personal trauma, I've had to learn a lot more about how to communicate effectively and empathize with other people without taking that upon myself. Like I can be here for your trauma and I can listen and I can maybe give you some directions that you might find some extra help. And I don't have to take that on myself. It's not my fault that you experienced that. And I think that's a really hard line for people to draw nowadays is that like, I, I can be here for you. And there is no expectation that I fix it. You yeah. just need company and somebody to tell you that you're you're loved and cared for and okay. And I think in my experience, especially earlier on when I was really struggling to establish my my business and my coaching practice, is I was afraid that if you told me this problem and I couldn't solve it, you were going to leave me as a client. And you were a failure as a coach, right? Because you yeah all the problems, right? Yeah. And. So one of the things about being maybe a more mature coach, having been in this game for a while, is just to realize, like, I don't ha- even have to solve that. Like, that's, that's not what I was hired for. Mm-hmm. Um, but to, just just be human. <laughs> just just be human. And and you're right. This whole it is drilled into us. Like, and I think probably because south of the border uh, in, in the U.S., like it's a f- hugely litigious society. Yeah. That's um, just people will seems like we, we thought like people in the U S will like just sue at the drop of a hat. You know, we heard this stat as children. I don't, I don't know if it's actually true, but it was like 70% of the world's lawyers resided in the United States. And I, was no, like, I believe it though. <laughs> yeah. Because there was, there's such a, such a tendency towards um, litigation down there. But I think it goes to the bigger question or the bigger problem. I'm going to say, I'm just going to say that it's a problem of, of lack of feeling safe here. You know, and I've lived in other countries and you are Canadian and have lived in other countries as well as Canada. Yeah. And you can vouch for the fact that, you know, in other societies, I don't feel like your safety is routinely as threatened as it is in America. And I mean that on every level, like the safety of being able to have a roof over your head or provide adequate food or to get healthcare when you're sick. These things are all threatened in American society unless you have an abundance of money or a family who has an abundance of money. But then you're just talking about generational 
you know, socioeconomic status issues, right? So like, and having lived in France, I always tell this story when people say to me, you know, it's like, oh, well, socialized medicine or whatever is terrible. And you just wait forever. It's like, no, my daughter licked deodorant when she was one year old in England. And we didn't even live in England at the time. We were living in the Czech Republic. Yeah. And she just came in the bedroom and grabbed the gel deodorant and just licked that sucker like a lollipop. <laughs> it was like a bomb. And the face she made, it was like, oh, this is not food, right? But she'd already swallowed it. And we stood there for a minute and I was like, okay, what do we do? Like, do we make her throw up? Because as an American, I'm going to solve that problem myself. I'm yeah. gonna, I can't take her somewhere. Yeah. Okay. I may not be able to like afford it. I may not know where to go. They may not help me when I get there. Like there's a thousand reasons I wasn't going to take that baby anywhere, but I was going to try to make her throw up. Right. Cause poison control, get that out of her system. And I know all these things because I'm an American and my husband's like, well, let's just take her down the street to the doctor. And I was like, oh, okay, well maybe we should call. Like, I don't know if they have an appointment, you know, maybe they probably can't get her in. And literally within 15 minutes, the guy was like, yeah, come on down. You know, we drove five minutes to the doctor's office. He like, yeah. he said, bring the deodorant so I can look at them. <laughs> yeah. And he yeah. was like, oh, how much did she lick? And I was like, well, it was enough to make her make a really unpleasant face. And he said, well, is she throwing up? I said, no. He said, is she, you know, complaining about anything or, you know, is there any symptoms? And I said, no. He says, well, she probably didn't eat enough of it to really do any damage. And I said, okay. He said, but keep an eye on her. Here's my number. You know, give me a call if she starts having symptoms. I said, okay. I need to make her throw up. He said, no. I said, okay, I'm just going to let her process that deodorant. Right. He's like, yeah. yeah. Okay. So we're leaving. Right. And I realized we just walked out. There wasn't even a way to pay. There was nowhere to pay. But wait, yeah. they didn't hound you with like a $500 bill, like six months no down the line. Way. Wow. Wait, was this Czech Republic or is this in England? This was in England. We were living in the Czech Republic at the time. So, you know, I have like 17 stories about wacky stuff in medical. Yeah. Oh, man. It makes me so jealous. I want to punch a wall right now just because I had to pay a big medical bill where they chased me for a year and a half because my insurance did not pay it even on there. They had, it was a whole thing. They should have paid it. And now I want to punch a wall. (laughs) But to tie this all together, when your safety is threatened, and this is just fundamental human behavior 101, like Maslow's hierarchy of needs, like if your safety is threatened, you will do anything to protect yours and your own and and yourself, right? And that's what you see in America, which leads to a litigious society. Because if, if you hit my car and you ruin my livelihood because I can't drive my car anymore and you didn't have insurance and I don't have the money to fix my car myself... I'm going to sue you for it because it's the only way I can continue to be safe. Yeah. Wow. It, that blows my mind as, as a Canadian. Um, it really, <laughs> like it, it does. There's this, you know, it's funny the direction this podcast has taken and there's so many side streams we can go down. Okay. We might, we're going to have to do this again, but I just, it just, it genuinely boggles my mind. I'm like, it, it, it doesn't make sense that the country that is probably the wealthiest in the world, a great wealth disparity, but the wealthiest in the world that you, you, you still got people like, who can't go to the doctor who are scared to go to the doctor. Like, why can't we provide that basic need for our citizens? And I, it boggles I my mind as a non-Canadian. Well, yeah. And I'm going to tie this into a little bow, but it's when you monetize something that is human rights related or human need oriented, as soon as you start monetizing that, you set up a system that is designed to exploit somebody, right? So if you just look at health and fitness, right? If I have a personal trainer that I hire and I pay them, of the hourly rate that they get, they're not making enough money to survive by working any less than 12 hours a day. 
if I'm working 12 hours a day taking care of somebody else and I'm back to backing clients like for that 12 hours, how good am I by hour 10? How much yeah. can I possibly care about somebody by hour 10? How differentiated are the programs I'm writing by the end of my 60 hour week? Wow. No I'm kidding. They're not, they can't be. You, as a human being, you can't sustain that. And so you're setting up an exploitative system, which is selling one thing and delivering another because who's, what are you gonna do? If your livelihood is on the line, are you gonna not sell personal training to that person that you don't feel qualified to help? No, you're absolutely gonna sell it because you need the money. And and that goes for any of these businesses where we're we're talking about health or we're talking about um, mental health or any of these things or just even like medicine. So, okay. Fun fact, right. I've had two repair surgeries in the past year and a half, almost, I guess it's two years now, but I had a labral repair in my shoulder and they moved my bicep tendon, which I thought was a terrible plan at first, but turned out to be the best idea ever. And I also had a uh, FAI impingement surgery on my hip. Right. And so like, I really like this surgeon. I would love to have him on his podcast. He'd never have time to do it because he's got 15 minutes. 15 minutes with each of his clients in order to diagnose a complex injury, decide whether or not surgery is necessary and get to know the underlying conditions of the person. And nine times out of 10, he's running backwards out of the room when he needs to talk to me. Yeah. Wow. And, and like, I've got a, I've got um, a couple friends down across the border and they're both medical doctors and, you know, one of them, uh, left the practice that she was in because of these like fraudulent billing practices and so on. She feels, cause she's Canadian and like, it says like so distressing seeing these things that we can't do to help, you know, and you know, he's a brain surgeon and I, I mean, I just about choke backwards when I want to hear what his hourly rate is. I'm just like, what? That just boggles my mind. But I mean, it's, Hey, you're taking people's lives into your hands and the risk of like, if you ever botch that, like, yeah, it's monumental. So we're going to, we're going to try and, I don't know, save the world or solve some of this or really change the conversation around health and fitness and wellness, because there's such a distorted view of, of really what this looks like in, in the real world. And so we want to dig into the nitty gritty, the ugly, the, the human, the imperfect, the flawed and say like, this is okay. And this is actually, you know, where the name for my business came from because I, I'm brazen fit. People are often like, oh, well, you're just like really loud or bold. It's like, no, but it, it takes being bold and being brave to get through this stuff. If you're timid about it or if you're questioning and you're not, you know, committed to really, really digging deep. And it was your metaphor from last time we talked that I, I, I'm going to steal that one from you, which is the Never. like, People show up and expect me to have like a rainbow unicorn and, and you know a second one in tow for them to ride. We're just going to ride over this rainbow into the sunset. And it's going to be awesome. And I really, I'm like standing at the mouth of this tunnel full of sewage. <laughs> and I'm going to give you a kayak. And I, I think that's like the best possible metaphor I've ever heard for what the human experience is actually like. Because the expectation that we don't suffer or that we should eliminate suffering is ridiculous. Like our entire physiology is wired for pain to be the signal for change. Yeah, that's such um, I, I like want to repeat that. Like our entire physiology is wired such that pain is the signal for change. Yeah. And because we, you've probably heard the phrase that like we don't change until the pain of remaining the same exceeds the pain of creating change. Yeah. That's, 
that's how we're wired. And so like I, I call the work that I do brain driven weight loss in a sense. I, mm. it, it's, it's a term that I've coined. I think, I don't know if anyone else has used it before. I, I haven't Googled it to see if anybody else talks about it like that, but it's really, I'm trying to shine a light on the fact that if we're going to create transformation, which is like a new way of living, not this temporary shift in habits and uh, go back to living your life again as soon as you're done suffering your way into losing weight. But we're going to create transformation in your life where you now are living a new lifestyle. Essentially, you're adopting a new identity as a human being. That takes place at the brain level. And so it's, I'm like, I need to go become a psychotherapist or something. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. If only I could pick the PhD I want the most. Is it, is it a DPT or a physical therapist? Do I want that PhD in nutrition or should it really be in psychology? I don't know. I don't know if I have time for all three. Oh, man, I'm like, I want, I want psychology. I want endocrinology uh, and I want neurology, you yeah. know? Ooh, so many, so many things to learn. I want to ask you, John, saying Chris and I were just talking about, I think, Last night, Chris, you and I talked um, about painful memories and traumatic experiences, edited, like, oh, my God, remember that incredibly Intrusive. painful memory. Yeah. Um, whether it be like a little small, like comment, something someone said, or like a long kind of drawn out experience that was very shaping of how you felt about yourself. Can those be useful? And then also how, if so, how can you make them useful instead of instead of like just using them as torture devices? <laughs> that's a big question. Oh, I'm sorry. That's my angry cat. <laughs> I didn't realize I was holding her against her will. I thought she was enjoying her life. Sorry. <laughs> oh, that's good. Um, yeah. And that that's, and I can really only speak from my own individual experience and I can't say this is going to be prescriptive for everyone. Um, I think the the experiences I went through in order to move past it, like I had to, I had to, first of all, I had to forgive and to forget because what happens every time I would relive what happened to me, because our brains try to do this. I'm going to relive it so I can try to rewrite it. Yeah. I'm going to relive it and say, if I knew this, I would have done this. And that's what was going on in my head. I was reliving it. And every time I thought about it, the unjustness of it, four guys jumping me at night you know, for no good reason. Well, there was a reason, but that'll be for another discussion. And it was not, nothing to do with me. It was it, nothing to do with Jonathan. Um, I was just a representation of something I felt was a historical oppression, essentially. Uh, that's me glossing over it. So the, the I had to ask the question, what leads a human being to the place in their life where they feel that this is an appropriate course of action to rectify what happened to them? And it's not to excuse the behavior. What they did was wrong. But to understand that there's a reason why they did what they did. And when I, it's, it's, and it would be controversial because people, how could you humanize monsters? Like they murdered a guy the night before they attacked me. They beat him to death. They were trying to do that to me too. I, I was unbelievably fortunate in that I happened to be big enough and strong enough and somehow didn't get knocked out after multiple hits over the head with a brick. Like, I, I don't know. I, I believe in God. So I will say that, like, I believe, you know, but one way, like, so, and they would, they would do it again in a heartbeat if they were, I, I, I believe if they were to see me. So how do, how do I rectify that? These, these men who did this to me um, and, and forgiving them, 
but one, it was about like setting me free. So that every time I thought about the incident, I didn't relive it angrily trying to rewrite it. I just accepted this is what happened. This happened because this is where these human beings were at in their life. I, I don't think most human beings are born deciding they want to inflict violence on other human beings. Something in their experience pushes them to this place in their existence. And so moving to that place uh, with regards to my perpetrators was what allowed me to get to this place of forgiving them. And forgiveness itself was a process. So I made the decision that I wanted to forgive them because I wanted to be free. So I wanted to be able to speak about the experience and not be not be angry about it and essentially re-traumatize every time I, I lived it again. And so every time the experience would come up again, I would try to shift my perspective and say, um, these are human beings. These are human beings. They're not monsters. They're human beings. And again, it seems so counterintuitive to try and humanize people who did things that are you know, atrocious, really. But there's something that led them to that place. And, and by doing that and, and by humanizing them and then by realizing that forgiveness doesn't absolve them, but it really it was setting me free so that, that that experience and reliving it no longer re-traumatized me. So that was kind of my process. And it might look different for other people. And I will say one of the things that I found really helpful is we're obviously working with a trauma counselor who helped me to understand what was going on in my brain. So I, I would have these flashes of rage where I wanted to inflict violence. Mm. And I'm, I'm former military trained. I, I could do that. But the other part of my brain goes, this is not who you are as a human being. You're not a violent person. You don't, you don't wish violence or vengeance on anybody. And so there was this real, I don't know, this real consternation, this real like suffering because a part of me was screaming to inflict violence to try to rectify what had been taken from me. And a part of me is like, this is not who you are as a human being. You don't do this to other human beings. And so learning to understand why that was present in my brain helped me to not feel so guilty about these feelings that came up that were in, in conflict with who I am as a human being. So I, it was like I became okay with the thoughts of wanting to inflict violence, recognizing for what they are. They're not who I am. They're going to come there, but I don't have to act on them. I don't have to attach to them. And I actually, through meditation, developed this visualization where I could wrap that thought in a bubble and float it out the side of my head. And so I think everyone's process of like coming back from that, is, and I've actually never shared some of this stuff in like public before. So, but really for me, this is, this is kind of how I went through the process of trying to make peace with what had happened to me. And I share that and say like, I recognize that like, it was really only one incident. I shouldn't say only, I don't mean to diminish it, but other people have been like through, through a lot worse. Um, and so the way that you might deal with it would look maybe different than I is, but maybe there's something in there that goes, okay, um, I can maybe connect some dots here. I, I want to thank you first for sharing that because it, I don't think no matter how well you have forgiven or how well you have processed any of this, that bringing those things up doesn't affect you, you know? So I thank you for bringing it up yeah. and talking about it. But I also, I think I want to point out a couple of really common factors when, you know, you asked me the question the other day, Liz, that was the same about some of my personal trauma. Um, and it's this idea of empathy because, you know, you, the first thing you said was, you know, I, I wanted to be able to understand how a human being could get to a place where they could do that to another human being. And from the anthropology perspective, humans need to divide themselves into groups for survival, right? And so you create an us and a them, and what you do to the them is no longer the same. You don't moralize it the same way as 
something you would do to the us. You can see this in gangs, you can see this in <clears throat> countries, you can see this at all levels of society. Um, and so you then also have to unpack the fact that like, you then, after experiencing that level of trauma and violence, you then developed those violent tendencies towards others. And so it's like, at this, at the risk of this sounding super woo-woo, it's like energy transfer, right? It's this idea of if you have received so much terrible, violent, traumatic energy from somebody else, it's really, really difficult not to pass that on because it becomes a part of you and then you have to do the work. And so I, I just want to say like what you've accomplished is amazing because you were able to sit there with those feelings and with that rage and that injustice that you felt and not perpetuate it because that's, that's how you stop it. Right. Is you, you need these communication skills and you need these trauma understanding skills. How is your brain dealing with this? You need these things. And I think for anybody listening who has ever undergone some kind of serious violent trauma, um, it, it really is invaluable to have somebody help you through it. It is invaluable because you can't see yourself. It's like you just don't yeah. work on your own car, man. Just don't work on your own car. Yeah. And and one of the things that the trauma counselor shared with me is like they, and it's maybe a spin on, on your idea of energy transfer. They, they took my power away. Mm-hmm. So they attacked me at a vulnerable moment. Um, they attacked me when I was outnumbered. Um, they attacked me at night. And so and I have a very strong sense of sort of justice and fairness. And this was extremely unjust and unfair and unjustified and so on. And so they, they took that away from me. And so the natural human response is to try and take it back from someone else. Yep. This has been taken from me. And I think this is why abuse perpetuates abuse or hurt perpetuates hurt. If somebody doesn't realize. So because she explained that to me, I realized that when I had these thoughts of of retribution, of vengeance, of inflicting violence, this was my brain's attempt to take back something that was taken from me. But I had enough self-awareness to realize that that wouldn't do it. And had I ever done something like had I ever acted on the thoughts that entered my head, like it would have, it would have just burdened my heart for the rest of my life. Mm -hmm. I think this, you know, the other thing that comes up for me while I'm listening to you and what your trauma counselor said is this idea that I've talked with Liz about before. It's like, you can have emotions and you don't have to act on them, but learning to do what you did and be able to like watch them. I actually use a waterfall. I would say like, you can be in the space behind the waterfall and you can watch those things go by and you can reach out and you can touch them, but you don't have to be in the water crashing over the waterfall. But I like your, it was like a bubble. I like that too, because it's like, it's very, it's far away, right? It's something that is outside of the logical decision-making part of you. And I think that's really, really critical when you're dealing with something like a repetitive response to trauma or to stress as as manifests as a coping mechanism, you know, as far as it pertains to eating in this case, because this is one of the ways people cope. Right. And I think that's one of the other things that really I, I would like to drive home on this podcast today is that, you know, if you find yourself compulsively eating or compulsively drinking or compulsively doing anything else to soothe yourself or cope with something like that's, that's normal. That's your brain trying to heal you. And it's not that that's bad, but the way that you're choosing to cope isn't serving you. 
or, you know, that's usually why you've reached out is right because you feel like this thing isn't soothing you. And we talked last time about how challenging it is when it's food from a different perspective. And I'm not minimizing or diminishing anybody who has substance abuse issues, but with substance abuse, if it's alcohol, for example, you can literally just never drink again. Yeah. But when it's food, you still have to eat every day. So yeah. you can't hide from these feelings. I actually feel like it's extra challenging in some ways to overcome compulsive eating because you can't just never eat food again. You can't eliminate your environment. <laughs> this might be another uh, another episode, a conversation just about my experience as a binge eating food addict and just kind of sharing that in a way that um, might help other trainers and coaches understand what it's actually like um, because it's not an issue of lack of discipline or things like that. You're absolutely right. It's the brain trying to solve a problem with a great short-term solution that has terrible long-term ramifications ultimately. And one other thing I just want to touch on, because there are those who might be listening um, who have been traumatized. Uh, trauma is not a pissing contest. Yeah. Um, it's really important to understand that uh, w- w- people would come to me and say, oh, that's nothing. You know, you should hear what happened to so-and-so. And they'd tell me another horrifying story. And uh, that is absolutely the worst thing you could possibly do um, to, to diminish somebody's experience of it. Um, so I just want to put that out there. It's not a pissing contest. And if you, and don't do this to yourself where you're like, oh, it's nothing. Cause this is the only thing that happened to me. At least this wasn't it. And so on. It's like, it doesn't matter. I'm now in the place where I'm grateful for it, where I'm genuinely grateful for it. Um, it was, I, in a sense, I would say like, I had to go through a type of hell. Mm-hmm. I really had to go right to the bottom and, and just feel entirely lost and dissociated and disconnected from who I was. And it was this awful place to be. And uh, I have to just give a world of credit to my wife. Uh, uh, you know, um, she is just the most amazing human being in my life um, because she stood by me through all of this, not even fully understanding it, would not leave my side, you know, in all of my struggles. And so she was an absolute rock through through all of this. And uh, that's one of the reasons why I was able to to move through it um, because I had a safe human being um, who was there by my side in all of this. So you're, you're absolutely right. I would not be the human being I am today. I would not have the degree of empathy and compassion and understanding had I not gone through all of that. And that's put me where I am today, why I do I do what I do. So I would, I would not wish it on anybody. I would not ask for it again, but I would not take it away either. And I think this is something that, you know, in the effort of pulling down the curtain between coaches and clients, because oftentimes because of how fitness and health is marketed is like you find this person you think is some kind of superhero or possesses something you don't possess and you glorify them and emulate them and you put them up on this high pedestal. And the reality is, is that most of the coaches I know, and and even including those ones who are Instagram trainers and everything, they've also experienced their own version of what we're talking about. And it's affected them in a way that they want to reach out and help. And I think this is one of the most amazing side effects of trauma is that it does instill, I think, often in you a sense of empathy if you're able to overcome those angry, ragey feelings. And it it drives you to go seek out how to help other people. Yeah. And it's such a common story. And I'm not saying it's common, in, again, not in a way to minimize it, but in a way of like, we can use that to our advantage, that it's a common story. We can pull together and say like, yeah, we've all learned these skills. We've all learned these ways of coping. Like, let us all help you. Let's 
pull together a group of people who, you know, maybe you've had one particular kind of violent trauma and you've had a different one. And like, you've had this other completely different one. And you, you've only had micro traumas, but they've gone on for 20 years from the same yeah. group of individuals, you know, and like, let's create that. Echo. That's the echo chamber I want to see, you know, when we talk about Facebook marketing and, and algorithms that show you the same thing over and over, like that's the echo chamber there needs to be. And I'm up for anything we can do to amplify what we're talking about and to normalize the fact that like those coping mechanisms you have are there for a reason. It's not that you're stuck or you fail or you're lame or or any of those derogatory things that we we throw at people when they are non-optimal, you know, and that was actually part of that podcast I was listening to this afternoon on the Dr. Berardi show about weight loss was this idea of like, there's these like top 10 traits that if you're just lucky enough to win the genetic lottery and be born with, none of these things really end up applying to you. You know, if you're white, female, uh, no, sorry, white, thin, affluent. And then there was like three other ones that I'm blanking on at the moment because, you know, we've had a pretty deep conversation. Intelligent. (laughs) But uh, yeah, no, it's not even that one because that one, that one has so much more to do with um, environment as well, rather than just raw intelligence. Mm -hmm. But there was like this whole category or list of categories that she listed out that predisposed you to not be able to empathize with a lot of the rest of the world. And it's not bad to be those things. And I always say, I feel like I say this at the end of every podcast in the middle. It's like, I know it sounds like we deviated really far from health and fitness, but we didn't. Like, yeah. we didn't. And I think that's why this is so important that we we turn this up because this is the underlying battle that most people are facing. This, this is the reason they're struggling in the first place. Because if you're, if you're not starting from a place of self-care, then you're, you know, <laughs> you're coming at it from a place of potentially self-harm instead. And as long as you're using that as a a weapon to beat yourself with, it's, it's just going to keep repeating the cycle. I feel like, so, you know, because you're so insightful, Chris, I wanted to ask your thoughts on this. Um, Victimhood. Mm -hmm. I, at some point made a decision. I didn't want to be a victim anymore. I didn't want this thing to have power over me and to feel powerless. And maybe it's just in a nutshell, um, because maybe we'll dive into this in another conversation. Yeah, kind of like, you know, I was a victim, but I didn't want that to become my permanent identity. I love that. And, and here's why I love that. I think because it's at any point in your life, it's easy. And I'm going to use the example of like the high school jock. Okay. <laughs> Hold with me. I'm going to tie it together for you. I promise. <laughs> I, I believe you. You got okay. this. So like, we all have that stereotype in our head of the guy who peaked in high school, right? He was captain of the football team. He was awesome. And then like years later, he's just really unhappy and he never went anywhere else with his life. And I, I feel like that's an example of a fixed narrative, right? And we have all these opportunities as we have experiences in life to fix our narrative and develop the stories that we, we tell ourselves about ourselves. We tell other people about ourselves that develops our personality and, and how we identify ourselves versus others in the world and in our culture. And I think it's, it's when we don't face the uncomfortable changes that we come up against, that we get stuck in a narrative. You know, it's this idea of like, it's chasing that discomfort. My husband has this thing. He has different types of fun he talks about, right? There's four types of fun. He didn't make it up. We actually, 
he, he heard it somewhere else, but it's become a really big part of our family narrative. And it's this idea of like type one fun is fun now, but probably doesn't really do much for you in the long run. Type two fun is probably not fun now, but in the long run, it's good for you. You know, something like a, a bike ride, like you go on a bike ride and it's hard. Um, and then later you're fitter and you feel better, or, you know, you're eating your vegetables now and later you feel better because you ate your vegetables, right? So that's type two fun. There's type three fun, which is it's not fun now and it wasn't fun later. And honestly, you probably shouldn't have done it in the first place is things like climbing Mount Everest. Was it fun? No. <laughs> Were you glad you did it? Maybe not always, right? And, and maybe it wasn't even successful. And I think those are the types of discomfort you have to keep changing so that your narrative stays flexible. Because when, when you decide who you are, you do the thing, the, the closed mindset thing, right? And we talk all the time about growth mindset and how you need to be open and neuroplasticity is important and that we, we are all changeable individuals. I think victimhood can become a fixed component of who you are and then it really traps you where you are. Because there, there's a degree of comfort in it. Yeah, absolutely. It's an identity. It's an identity that's very easy to anchor yourself to because it it feels draws. good sometimes to feel bad. If that makes sense, and it draws people to you. It does. Good, empathetic, caring people who want to show you that, and that that feels good in the moment. So we've got like maybe victimhood, um, binge eating, uh, disordered relationship with food, um, trauma, trauma, identity. All these things make uh, a great discussion. To, to kind of expand on this and maybe anybody listening who's like something in this very varied episode that touched a chord with you that you'd like us to zoom in on and maybe expand on that one part of it. Uh, maybe let, let, let Chris and Liz know. People are messy and complicated and interesting and different. And it, when you try to take that away and oversimplify it, you just don't, I don't think you make any progress. I don't know. No. It's, it's what makes it, it's, in a sense, what makes life fascinating. And I use fascinating because um, it just draws our, it draws our attention. It makes us want to engage. Oh, I read this article this morning. I love talking to you, John. This is so much fun. <laughs> I was reading this article this morning and it was about like the classic types of um, happiness was there was hedonic happiness and eudonic happiness. Like the ancient Greek philosophers were like, you know, either you're, you're focused on the physical pleasures or you're focused on like helping the world, right? Those are the two types. And they said, but they think that they've discovered that there's actually a third type, which is, which is psychologically interesting life. And that's what people actually in both camps will pursue. If you've got a psychologically interesting life, which means it's full of different events and challenging things and like different people and places, and you're constantly having to challenge your, your perceptions and your ideas. Well, let's see. I've had about 12 careers. I've lived in seven countries. I've traveled to 45. I've been through trauma. I've lost my life savings. I've had two business failures. Um, that's kind of the highlights. <laughs> yeah, would you say that was psychologically interesting? <laughs> it, yeah. Yeah. I look right. back and I'm like, whoa, like I did not expect this when I graduated high school. Right. That's a TikTok trend right there is they have like old you and future you having a little conversation with each other. Like, did you marry, get married and have children? And then like now he was like, yes, but it's not what you thought it would be. And then it goes back and it's like, but are you happy? And it's like, of course, you know, and it's like that is interesting, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> that was from TikTok directly. Oh, uh, that's awesome. <laughs> 
Well, I just want to say thank you so much for coming on. And I know that we, you know, as usual, bounced around, but um, I'm a big fan of messy conversation because I feel like it gets us farther in the long run. It's that type two fun, right? It's, so, it's unpredictable. <laughs> I'd love to do this again. Um, I would love to like hear about when you launch your next episode of your podcast as well. I think the more people we have listening, the more people we have making great content, the better. So yeah, go ahead. It was, was it unplugged? Uh, wellness, wellness unplugged. So look out for that. Hey, that's it for this week. Thanks for listening. And I hope that today's episode made you think a little bit about how you could apply some of what we're talking about to yourself and your behaviors and let us know if you find any of it meaningful. Make sure to tune in for the next episode where we will continue to have somewhat circular conversations that may be helpful. They will be. They will be helpful. (laughs) It's what you take away from them. Wow. The more you know. Thank you.